Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. New Books in Southeast Asian Studies is supported by the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at the University of Sydney. SIAC is a university-wide multidisciplinary initiative that facilitates collaborations and builds on the expertise of our researchers to address the region's challenges. If you'd like to know more about SIAC's latest activities, click on the links included on the New Books in Southeast Asian Studies website. If you'd like to listen to more podcasts about Southeast Asia, Check out the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre's podcast series, SIAC Stories, available on the New Books in Southeast Asian Studies website. Another great sponsor of New Books in Southeast Asian Studies is the Griffith Asia Institute, an internationally renowned research centre committed to the study of and engagement with Asia and the Pacific. The Institute's research focuses on politics, security and economic development, emphasising the enhancement of links between businesses, governments and academia. For more information on Griffith Asia Institute's activities, click on their website link on the New Books in Southeast Asian Studies website. Hello and welcome to New Books in Southeast Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Faiza Zakaria, a scholar of Southeast Asian history and the environment at Nanyang Technological University in Singapore. It is my pleasure to have with me today my guest, Jonathan Padui, author of the monograph Disturbed Forest, Fragmented Memories, The Jirai and Other Lives in the Cambodian Highlands, published by University of Washington Press in 2020. Dr. Padui is Associate Professor of Anthropology in the University of Hawaii in Manoa. His research examines relationships between social and environmental change in the highlands of mainland Southeast Asia. And this book speaks to his approach of combining ethnographic and historical methods to understand questions of equity and inequality among the societies that he studies. So coming to the book that we are discussing today, Disturbed Forest Fragmented Memories, this book investigates and minority in upland Cambodia, the Jirai, and unpacks the stories of violence and dispossession over the last century. These stories are told with great attention paid to the perspective of the landscape itself. And what makes this particularly fascinating is that the landscape is not just a setting, but also a historical actor. Jonathan, welcome to the podcast. It's such a delight to have you here. Maisa, it's so great to be here. Thanks for having me. It's very exciting. Let's just start maybe with an introduction to both your book, the process that you had to writing it. The focus of the book is on the Jirai, which is a minority group in the Cambodian Highlands. And when we talk about Cambodian history, generally we don't start with the Jirai. So this perspective is a very valuable one that you are uncovering. Could you tell us how you come to study the Jirai and a little about your experiences in the Cambodian Highlands? My background in in Southeast Asian studies is relatively new. I started out graduate school as a Latin Americanist and had spent quite a lot of time in Paraguay in South America, where I worked with a group of foragers who had hunting rights in a 
a nature reserve. And I had lived down there for seven or eight years. And when I got to graduate school, I was at Yale and there were just these amazing scholars of Southeast Asia. And I got so excited and interested by Southeast Asia. I kind of thought that it would be interesting to make a switch. Originally, my questions had to do with this category of indigenous people, since this is a global category that has such different meanings in different places. And I thought it would be an interesting project to try to understand how that term, what the different implications of it are for politics and particularly for environmental politics in different places in the world. But that's really not where the project went. I wound up in Cambodia because there was a graduate student coming to the master's program that I was in who was from Cambodia. It's actually a good friend of mine, Sang Piek, who's become the director of the World Wildlife Fund's Cambodia office. And he invited me to Cambodia to kind of explore. And eventually I wound up in the highlands there where people were practicing Swidden agriculture, which is this form of agriculture that I'd heard so much about that involves a great deal of environmental knowledge and incredibly complex management practices that make things look deceptively disorganized, even as the farms themselves are these uh, sort of masterpieces of knowledge and effort and practice. So once I had been introduced to the hills of Cambodia, I I did not want to leave. And uh, yeah, it was just the sort of this incredible place where so much change had happened, so many things had happened. And yet after the incredible disruptions of the 1970s and 80s, Cambodia had also had a civil war that lasted into the late 80s, early 90s. And in the midst of all of that, there was this incredibly productive upland agro ecosystem going on up there. And I just found it fascinating and it raised so many questions for me. And so that's how I came to the project. Could you tell us a bit about what are some of the challenges that you had in accessing this sort of ethnographic data that you needed for the book? The Highlands is not a particularly accessible part of the country. This is a kind of a classic question, right? How does one get to, quote, the field? My journey there took quite a long time. I I was actually working in a different field site for up to six months with a different language group and was called into the headquarters of the village or the commune chief there, the sub-district chief, who then told me, you know, from now on, we're going to have police accompany you everywhere you go because we want to protect you and you know look out for your safety, which was code for we don't want you poking around here or something like that. This was an incredibly fraught sort of location in Cambodia where there were large concessionaires moving in to do various kinds of, you know, there was a 100,000 hectare forest plantation going in there that was causing a whole bunch of unrest among the folks in this part of uh, Cambodia, which was in actually in Mondalkiri, Cambodia. And, you know, I I remained in contact with my friends there because I'd made some really good friends in Mondalkiri, but I also just left because I didn't want to endanger people I was working with. And it was clearly uh, creating conflict. So wound up in uh, another part of the highlands of Cambodia, and there were a number of uh, grassroots organizations who were interested or or hoped to have the help of foreigner. You know, there's always this sort of thinking on people's parts that outsiders can do quite a lot for people. I always tried to sort of tamp down any expectations because I felt that my presence exposed people to risk in, in some ways, even as the opportunities to try to learn from each other were great. But eventually, what eventually happened? It happened in the Cambodian way. I met somebody who knew somebody who helped to suggest to the governor that I should 
be allowed to work there. Once I was granted this sort of from above authorization, I, I write about this in the book. The problem is then that you come with the backing of the state and the state is not a neutral actor in the lives of the people who live in the hills. So the process of trying to establish some sort of solidarity with people, even as that is your introduction to their lives, is a very complicated one and one that has a lot of implications, especially if we think about histories of colonialism and the kinds of impositions into people's lives that come from the outside. So as I write in the book, I think that the way that we got past that was a to find ways to work from positions of relatively different power, but also there was a lot of drinking involved. Uh, so that's one of the way that a lot of a lot of things in the Highlands get resolved through ceremonies and rituals that involve great deals of drinking. Maybe picking up on the risk that you mentioned and the awkward positioning if you have state backing, could you tell us a little more about the Jirai and their positioning with respect to the current Cambodian state? There are far more Jirai speakers, Jirai people living on the Vietnam side of the border in what are the central highlands of Vietnam than in Cambodia, where there are about 10,000, maybe there's 15,000 Jirai speakers among a whole bunch of highland ethnic minority folks up there. And they have been viewed with great deal of suspicion from the Cambodian government. They're not clearly joined to the ethnic majority Khmer population of the lowlands, and they represent a sort of a threat. And these things from time to time have meant that the state uh, in its various forms over time has exerted a great deal of pressure to try to integrate the highlands into the nation state. And this has also involved uh, liberal doses of violence where various kinds of military campaigns have been enacted in the highlands, resettlement schemes, various kinds of landscape transformations, all intended to uh, solidify the relationship between these ethnic minorities who seem not to fit well from that uh, perspective of the state and of the, the majority population. So that's the sort of background that motivates quite a great deal of official policy and various kinds of placement of this borderland area within geopolitics and national politics. I think it's really interesting that when we look at Cambodian history through the lens of the Jirai, the picture I think that you, you paint in the book shifts a little from, from the standard accounts of the, the same history from the point of view of the Khmer. And let's sort of look at the title of your book, Disturbed Forest Fragmented Memories. I think it comes from this wonderful passage in your book where you describe how history is always remembered in fragments. And I like it so much that I want to quote it here. I think the like the landscape itself, though histories from the hills are only ever partial, to understand the past through its remnants in the present requires not only coming to grips with the fractured nature of the past, but also celebrating the virtues of its incompleteness. Where the past lives on in the present, it does so only in pieces. And I love that because in some ways it challenges my preconception of what history should be. As a historian, I always work towards seeking as complete a picture of the past as possible. But what do you see as some of the virtues of incomplete histories that you're accessing here? 
That's a great question. And this was a challenge in the book, in writing it, and certainly in the experience of learning from my dry friends in the village. Just to give you an example, you know, I kept hearing stories about the past and I kept asking about what had happened in the village over the past hundred years or, or longer. And dry men and women are narrators of stories. I mean, this is one of the wonderful things about dry culture is this sort of many different forms of oral literature that have been celebrated in the past. There's a great French ethnographer named Jacques Dorn who documented a lot of these incredible oral literature, these myths and mythical histories. And people would fall into descriptions of the past that picked up in the middle of a story and left off and seemed to join up to some present day moment or some present day encounter. And the assumption was that you knew the general thread of the past and that these narrators could introduce to you characters from the past who could be instructive in ways of understanding the present. And these were often stories that were quite clearly joined to the landscape or to the environment in some way, so that uh, someone telling you a story would point with their chin up to a, a mountain and say, it was right up there, it was right up there, you know, and you sort of understand that there's this person who in some ways lives on this memory lives on but only as a partial story because you're jumping into it from one perspective not having gotten all the background and then before you know it you're talking about some other more recent history or something a little bit older and and that fragment of the story has sort of uh, disappeared and you just captured a glimpse of it and this seemed to be so thoroughly a piece of how histories are narrated in the hills that I thought, well, that perhaps I can make a virtue of my absolutely incomplete knowledge and sit with that and, and let that be the form that uh, that knowledge takes as it comes in and out of the sort of focus of the narration of the book. So yeah, th there, there's a lot of that that also sort of relates to uh, the approach to the book in terms of what stays in the landscape is always being transformed. The remnants of older ways of living sort of live on in the understory of forests or in some abandoned statues that you might see out in a forest that themselves uh, are able to be used to narrate a story of some sort. And uh, yet you don't have the whole story. You have just a little piece of an older ecology that still exists there. So that too was a, a way of bringing into focus the past and also making a virtue of the incompleteness of the knowledge that uh, any of us have about it. And especially because once the past has been pieced apart in this way, you can use pieces of it to tell stories about the present. And really, that's, that's what a lot of uh, people are doing when they're thinking through the landscape and thinking through their histories as they try to relate to this foreigner who's appeared and expressed in interest in what they have to say. I think it's really interesting how you describe pieces of the past really index, I think, continuities that really is ongoing and enacted in the landscape itself. And one of the impressive parts of the book for me was that from these pieces, you really assemble a book that is actually roughly in chronological order, and it almost reads like a history book. So why did you choose to organize the book this way? This was a terrible thing, you know. I felt like I had to have some sort of thematic thrust for each chapter, or else I was failing as a theorist and as an anthropologist. But yeah, the book wound up being more or less chronological in its 
presentation. And that has to do with the way that I approached trying to understand what landscapes mean or how we might use them to try to understand the past. Built into the sort of approach to constructing the book or framing the book was a notion of the historical conjuncture, which is a concept I took from Tanya Lee, and it's been also used to great effect by Nancy Peluso and has to do with some of the writing of uh, Doreen Massey and others. And the idea there is that at a given moment in time, a certain set of historical or political or social forces come together and structure life at that time. And it occurred to me that the human relation with the environment is an expression of that historical conjuncture. And so even though it appears from a sort of superficial level that the Jirai as a people and as farmers have resiliently been doing the same thing for centuries, right? They're practicing Sweden. When you start asking people about what was happening on the landscape at a given moment, it turns out that they were constrained by international markets, by global conflict, by processes of colonialism, all of these things even in these remote hinterlands, uh, structured life very completely in ways that became expressed in the landscape so that the landscape of a given time has features that are absolutely expressive of that political conjuncture. And in order to illustrate that, it seemed that a useful way of organizing the book would be to take a series of these moments, this uh, deeply pre-colonial moment from about 200 years ago when the Jirai first arrived in Cambodia, uh, which is recorded in oral histories that have quite a lot to do with things like forest spirits and elephants and culture heroes from the region who managed to challenge the the will of the, of the spirits. You know, these are recorded in oral history and make for a great way of understanding the way that Jirai perceived or remember this period, all the way through uh, various moments, the, the colonial moment itself, this moment in the mid 20th century when Nordom Sihanouk, as the head of state, was attempting to exert control over the remote highlands because of the fear of losing them in uh, this emerging uh, middle of the 20th century conflict. And I, I think you alluded to this earlier, but these are subaltern histories. These are histories that run counter to the grand narratives of the Indochina Wars that we know from history books written from the perspective of, say, American strategists or Vietnamese generals or something of that nature, right? We have an entirely different understanding of what the war meant or what communism meant to people back in this time that is accessible through asking people about their experience. What was interesting for me was to reread, I think, these events from a different point of view and, uh, and, and learn, I think, more about um, how these experiences became, as you put it, expressed in the landscape. Uh, speaking of landscapes, I think one of the important contributions in this book is to uh, integrate different fields of inquiry on the landscape itself. Specifically, I think, three aspects, ecology, representation, and materiality. So how do you relate this to debates about nature, culture, and the discourse that a theoretical discourse that surrounds it. The landscape, sir, is an actor in this book. That is to say that just as the Jirai themselves constantly refer to the animated presence in the landscape and to the environment itself as having an enormous 
influence on their lives and structuring their ritual life, structuring much of the way that they relate to each other and to people outside of their community, for instance. That tendency, which we've seen in a great deal of anthropological literature in the past 10 years to really accept the possibility of uh, different versions of what the social consists of provides a, a wonderful way of opening out a series of questions about who the Jirai see themselves as being and how they see themselves as relating to each other, to the land. And you mentioned this tripartite understanding of landscape, which I suggest in the book. The idea there is that landscape forms a really provocative or a generative point of inquiry for understanding people because it does have this representational force, which is to say people invest landscapes with meaning. And those meanings live on for long periods of time and take on their own lives. What I suggest is that it has this sort of ecological dimension, right? The landscape is where we live. And it is made up of relationships between plants and their and soils and rocks and water and animals and people and all of those things. Uh, And that includes any kind of landscape that could be an agricultural landscape, that could be an urban landscape. It is made up of an ecology or of ecologies of some form, which we could just think of as interrelationships, you know, and it it becomes so interesting to think about that when we go to an urban setting or to uh, some sort of industrial landscape. And, you know, it's still an ecology. There are still these relationships. There are still flows of energy and nutrients and various materials in the landscape. And this third piece on the materiality, this has to do with the ways that landscapes act upon us and upon those other things that are living or or not living in them. And one of the things about the book, and I would just say, is that it represents an effort that anthropologists have been engaging in for a while to try to take seriously some of what human geography and cultural geography has been grappling with for decades. And there's so many really wonderful provocative efforts in that respect. Um, Think uh, perhaps of Donald Moore's work and others from the 90s. But, you know, there was this essay by Tim Ingold, which discussed the dwelling perspective of landscape that seemed to be cropping up on every syllabus for a while. And uh, in it, he dismisses the representational nature of landscapes. He says landscapes are, are lived in, and because they're lived in, they represent the sort of accumulation of lived experience and uh, and he suggests that's not representational. And to me, this seemed to exclude exactly what Jirai narrators and Jirai people who I talked with feel about the landscape, which is to say that they live within a system that is both a system of this sort of dwelling perspective could be taken, right? That it's it's we live in relation in the landscape and the landscape is a representation of that or is a an embodiment of that would be the right way to say it, right? But at the same time, they, they engage in uh, the most amazing artistic representations of landscape and they attach meaning and, and they seem to be absolutely at home living within a landscape that is a landscape of representational force. And so... When I thought through it, that finally clicked, and I, was, I just thought, okay, yeah, this is exactly these these three pieces help us to at least understand a little more fully what this place means to people and and how we might conceptualize it in a way that approaches Jirai understandings that are often, I would say, sublimated. I mean, they're not expressed; it's not a Jirai term, but it's a term that helps you to understand their engagement with the world they live in. 
what struck me about your response just now was that it occurred to me looking at your book and the subtitle, Jirai and Other Lives in the Cambodian Highlands, right? Would this be the way then that the Jirai would have phrased their life with respect to other elements in the landscape? Any discipline that brings its tools to other people's lives has its own intentions. And I certainly wouldn't want my Jirai friends to become anthropologists. I mean, I'm happy if they come become anthropologists, but I think it would be boring for them, right? So to suggest that what I've offered here is actually the Jirai perspective, that would be disingenuous. But I do think that I tried as hard as possible to faithfully reflect the ways that my friends in these villages that I was working in had talked to me about their feelings and understandings and knowledge. And in fact, when I first wrote the book, the draft that was read by some reviewers, I had the most amazing set of comments from two reviewers who who since became publicly known to me. So one was Penny Edwards, who's written amazingly, you know, this incredible work, uh, Cambodge. And she just kept asking me in her comments, like, well, that sounds like an external perspective, but what do the Jirai people you spoke with, what do they think about this, right? By constantly trying to urge me to shift that focus, I realized that I had been told these things and I hadn't necessarily put them into the right place in my understanding of what, and, and in trying to represent it. So I just would say to, in answer to what I think I remember your question as being, <laughs> that, that on the one hand, this is not how the Jirai would write anthropology because, God, I'm sure they do a much better job of it than I could. But at the same time, it's uh, as close as possible that I'm able to do to try to get at what the people I spoke with, how they felt about the world that they lived in and their impression of the past. You know, I think we can all identify with sort of being outside a community and trying to write about it in as, as fair a way as possible. Uh, I think we want to delve more into uh, the issues that you have brought up about uh, violence, dispossession, and also environmental recovery in this landscape. But at, the, at this point, let's just take a short break for some messages from our sponsors. New Books in Southeast Asian Studies has the generous support of the ANU Southeast Asia Institute, connecting you with the Australian National University's wealth of expertise in the politics, languages, societies, and economics of Southeast Asia through research, teaching, events, and more. To get details, visit seasiainstitute.anu.edu.au. That's seasiainstitute as one word. Hello and welcome back to New Books in Southeast Asian Studies. I am with Jonathan Padui talking about disturbed forests, fragmented memories, Jirai and other lives in the Cambodian highlands. Jonathan, I think your book takes really great pains to show that all human activities to the landscape in the forest took place over a long period of time. And in this long durée, you conceptualize movement of uh, pre-capitalist resource frontiers. Could you tell us more about that and whether you see these frontiers as continuous with modern resource frontiers or as an era in time that was distinct from a modern period? The the notion of the resource frontier has been explored to great effect recently, especially in writing about Southeast Asia. And I know, for instance, uh, Anna Singh has a sort of wonderful short piece on resource frontiers in Indonesia that's been expanded on by many others. And part of her approach to this has to do with the ways that capitalism dislodges, takes apart relationships in nature 
and in doing so, extracts things from one context in order to incorporate them into global commodity flows and uh, economies of extraction of various kinds. And that as a result of that, she actually has a wonderful way of thinking through the idea of alienation, because in that sense, alienation refers to this process of being removed from a set of relationships that previously existed, uh, which I find extremely provocative. When I was looking at the sort of early history of the Jirai experience in Cambodia, because they they migrated west uh, so that the Jirai living in Cambodia recognized themselves that they they live at the westernmost extent of the Jirai territory, which really has its heart uh, in Pleiku and uh, to some extent Kontum, or uh, what was once Pleiku and and Kontum, it's not Jalai and Kontum provinces in Vietnam. So this process of expansion happened in part because a resource frontier existed at that time. And this involved trade in forest products such as uh, ivory, animal tusks and skins, uh, all the kinds of things that Highlanders have traditionally uh, provided to the lowland states in these sort of trading relations. And part of this also involved um, what could be called slavery, although that term has such implications simply because of the experience of the Americas that it's a, a difficult term to use. But certainly, Georges Condominas uh, referred to these relations of this sort of pre-colonial moment as extreme forms of dependence in many ways, the grander organization of, of society in Southeast Asia or, or in this part of Southeast Asia at the time had to do with these forms of dependence, these patron-client relations that involves often the loss of personal freedom and some form of servitude or indenture to others. And the Jirai were known in the literature as having been very much involved in internecine raiding on each other and on members of other language groups. It's hard to call them ethnic groups so much that that concept is a little bit off because people have a lot of different allegiances. And anyway, the Jirai were certainly involved in this and were were represented by the French when they first arrived as uh, some of the most active in this trade. This happens before capitalism. I mean, global capitalism certainly is a thing. There are global markets for agricultural or forest commodities. And What's interesting about the way that Jirai narrators speak about this time is that they speak about themselves as frontiers people, so that while the dominant narrative today is that the Jirai and other ethnic minorities or highland minorities of this region are indigenous victims of a agricultural frontier that's gone rogue, which is certainly true these days, the Jirai themselves remember a time at which they themselves were the most important actors on the frontier, and that this was a resource frontier that existed really before capitalist social relations had taken hold. And there's a number of ways to talk about what would that mean, what were capitalist social relations, but certainly no one was selling their labor at the time. The land frontier was wide open. So this represents an earlier mode of a resource frontier that nonetheless involves some forms of alienation of the sort that Singh was talking about. And I think that that opens up ways of thinking about resource frontiers that uh, we haven't necessarily haven't been delved into quite so much. I remember reading that during the Vietnam War, the Highlanders were very much involved in the war and they would see John Wayne movies and they did not identify with 
the Indians in these colonial fantasies, right? But rather with John Wayne himself and with the cowboys of this period. And the way that it's presented in the book, I, I talk about this elaborate uh, healing ritual that involves a whole series of performances, essentially, of frontier tax collection and raiding, in which the protagonists of this ritual essentially shake down the entire village for tobacco and alcohol and meat and then go off and consume it. And it's a wonderful enactment of the state. And of course, they're imagining themselves into the position of these raiders and extractors uh, and doing the shaking down and celebrating it all. Again, this is a reading from the Jirai perspective, I, I believe, in which the message here is we are not only victims. And yes, you know, we are subject to state violence, but we can also identify with being these actors on a frontier, much in the way that there's a lot of myth-making around the American frontier, for instance. And I think that it's important to recognize that even as these are compromised narratives and have implications in terms of the use of violence and the way that it's remembered and, and valorized. When we look at the Jiraiya's actors on the frontier, in, in the book at least, the diversity, I think, of the resource frontier is considerably richer ecologically than what happened when we moved into sort of the, the modern era. And that's partly because of two major changes in the land, which is the cultivation of rubber and the reorganization of rice fields. So these are, I think, central processes that really changed the landscape in the 20th century. And they are read usually as simplifications of the landscape. But I think you show that there are some twists to this tale in which simplification can take rather surprising turns. Could you tell us more about that? Okay, but first I just have to tell you how fun it is to speak with someone who's read my book. I so appreciate that. (laughs) (laughs) It's great. On rubber. Rubber is this wonderful sort of state-signifying crop. It's organized into these grids across the landscape. And, you know, it seems to scientifically eliminate nature and turn it into a, a series of rows and columns like a balance sheet. It's this sort of spectacular nature of rubber that makes it a tool of statecraft so that the Sihanouk regime, when they decided that they needed to settle this frontier area, decided that the way to do this was to send the military in and build a massive rubber plantation, a state rubber plantation. And what could signify the state more than this sort of technocratic accomplishment that also seemingly would provide some form of income? And yet the state in its calculations is so flawed in this sense that it just, it's incre- it was an incredible blunder because rubber plantations are so odious to the people that they displace. So if you wanted to stir up a communist revolution, it was so it's a wonderful idea to just go and plant rubber on top of people's farms. There's a, a wonderful historian, Mitch Asso, his incredible yes. book about rubber in Southeast Asia. One of the things that he points out is that uh, pilots had been instructed not to bomb the rubber plantations because they represented a source of income for French colonial settlers. They were a sort of part of the girding of the French presence in Indochina. And of course, that's wonderful. So then the the communists had constructed what I think were kilometers of trail systems through these rubber plantations and the COSVN, which was an important center for organizing the war effort, the communist uh, war effort, 
was located in a rubber plantation. So the state had essentially planted the seeds of its own demise up in the hills this, in this way. This, it was impossible for them to use rubber to actually rationalize the landscape for all of its qualities, for all its seeming ability to serve as a kind of living panopticon. It didn't work. And I think that that's one of the more interesting lessons of this sort of efforts at landscape transformation that are intended to also transform society. And here you do get this sense of this notion of the historical conjuncture in which the conjuncture looks like rubber in this moment. And rubber helps to tell the story of a set of opposing political forces that are expressed in various forms of relationship to the landscape. And the same was true of rice uh, during the Khmer Rouge regime, which I believe is what you were also Mm -hmm. suggesting in, in your question, no? Yeah, both of them, although they're very different crops, of course, they both index a certain rational, as you're saying, rational logic to agricultural activities. And I think that is one of the key changes that really transformed the landscape during the period of time. But I think what is interesting is that you are also highlighting the limits of, of these sort of development um, programs that that's enacted in during these periods, despite, I think, the increasing power of the state and how that reached the highlands as well. One of the issues that then developed I think from the strength of the state and also war that later reached Cambodia is that of violence. And part of your book described how the Jirai experienced the wars of the 1970s. And one of them included a very poetic description by one of your interlocutors, which was that during the bombing, and here I quote, flowers fell from the sky. It's not just planned activities that sort of leads to major landscape changes. Traumatic moments also do the same thing. How does, how does this trauma sort of become reinscribed as changes to the landscape? This was this strange moment I had where I was in my friend's farm. She was doing some weeding and I was, as usual, sort of asking her questions and probably being a lot less helpful than I thought I was being. And she mentioned that during the war, flowers fell from the sky and I just had this kind of Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young moment where I was just thinking about a B-52 bomber, you know, sort of like unloading a bunch of roses down onto the ground as, uh, you know, as Neil Young plays guitar or something. And uh, she saw this look in my eye, you know, this sort of reverie that I was engaged in. And she's just immediately corrected me and said, no, 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 you don't understand this weed that I'm trying to get out of my field. We never had this here before. And uh, this weed turns out to be uh, Chromalena odorata. And there are two weeds that made their first appearance as colonizers of disturbed landscapes during the Vietnam War. One is Chromalena odorata, and the other is Mimosa pigra. And these are sort of famous invasive species that there's a whole literature on both of them. Chromalena is perhaps one of the most famous non-native species or invasive species globally. And I started to do a little research on it. And of course, there's this entire discussion of how Chromalena shows up, it does have to do with the kinds of forms of disturbance that would have been enacted by bombing, the clearing of landing zones, uh, all of the things that the war enabled, as well as the elaborate infrastructures of mobility that were the way that the war was carried out, right? You are bringing materiel and people from far away in huge quantities into a brand new place. And along the way, you're picking up uh, little bits of seeds and and, uh, dirt from other places and bringing it to these newly compacted soils where it's going to do wonderfully. 
so that the entire discussion of invasion, which has been part of this uh, concept of how Western ecologists talk about these species, right? There's a whole book called Invasion Ecology or something like that. That's the famous sort of marker of this of this literature. The Jirai have their own entire vocabulary for this and think about these things in many of the same ways so that this uh, people would say, you know, the Americans came to fight here and we're still trying to get rid of them today. And indeed, the, the names of these species index that conceptualization of the past so that the weed that she was pulling out of her farm field was called American weed, right? That's the name for one of them. And then the other one is, or well, one of them is called airplane weed. That's that's chromolena. And then the other one is called duimi, which means American leaf or American plant or something like that, American herb. So that the names of these species allow for a continued discussion of how they got there and what were the relations that brought these uh, brought these plants into being in this place in such a way that they create problems for the people who now have to continue this this fight. I think the weeds and invasive species is definitely one aspect that showed how violence and trauma sort of becomes reflected in the landscape. And returning, I think, to, to the issue of rice now in the Khmer Rouge period, which is the reorganization of the rice field during this period, as well as another um, source of trauma, right? So could you tell us maybe a bit more about how these changes also become reflected in the Jirai's experiences uh, through their connections with land? The general story is when the Khmer Rouge took power, and they took power up in the highlands well before they took control of Phnom Penh. So they took control of Phnom Penh in 1975, but the highlands were incorporated into uh, some form of uh, collective agriculture in 1971 or 72 in many places. And this involved bringing people down from the hills and down to the river valleys where they were organized into very large settlements. These agricultural collectives were organized by central committees. They were much bigger than the villages. And the people had been brought down by soldiers pointing uh, automatic weapons at them and telling them to get down to these collectives, uh, the Sahaka, they're called in Khmer, where they were put to work growing wet rice, uh, or or that is to say inundated pond field agriculture, uh, which involves creating buns of uh, mud uh, to grow uh, trans you know, it's a transplanting process. It's one variety or two, you know, just a few varieties of rice that are used in these large fields. The highlands are not necessarily the best place to grow rice like this. This is why people practice Sweden with what are called dry rice uh, varieties. Uh, you know, there's quite a lot of agroecological variation in the kinds of seed stocks used up in the hills in order to sort of account for microclimate and elevational difference and things like that. So you had all of these people sort of relocated to the lowlands and the, the reason, or, or to the valleys in any case. And the reason for this was an ideological insistence that the Khmer way of doing things was the best way of doing things. It's a kind of nationalist attitude towards agriculture, and agriculture itself was incredibly ideological. If you think about the kind of Maoist undertones of the Khmer Rouge Revolution, the sloganeering around rice, uh, if you have rice, you can wage war, was one of the slogans. Uh, There's a whole bunch of, of stuff like that. So one of the ways that I looked at this in the book was to try to understand uh, how 
the regime understood agriculture as a force of cultural and social transformation and modernization so that modernizing the hills and turning them into Khmers and new kinds of Khmer people, communist Khmer people, involved forcibly changing the relationship to the landscape uh, in this way. And the irony of this, much as in the case of rubber, is that uh, these new fields were cut to a very regular proportions that were dictated by the party center, right, as an ideological pronouncement. They should be one hectare fields, 100 meters on a side with a certain form of um, irrigation that was cut into larger squares so that later observers who came to see these rice fields uh, described them uh, as vast checkerboards. That word comes up all over the place. And this is not a great way to grow rice because uh, one part of a one hectare field may be a soil type that has different drainage qualities than another part so that you get flooding in one section of the field and dry rice in another section of the field. And uh, there were all kinds of efforts made by the regime to impose uniformity on the growing of rice. And this is exactly in contrast to the kinds of uh, multifarious, uh, extremely diverse sets of practices that were embraced by highland people for centuries, which is why they were such successful farmers uh, and able to produce for themselves. So Uh, That's one of these places where the kinds of hubris of state-centric central planning, like in the case of rubber, collapses on itself. And it's one of the reasons that the regime uh, failed on a large scale was its inability to account for these failures uh, and to understand its, its own hubris, essentially. After the period of the Khmer Rouge, then what followed was uh, maybe a return to uh, more more, uh, greater community control of the landscape. And this was a period of what characterized as re-diversification of the landscape. So this is where, in a way, the book sort of ends off the story of the highlands. So could you maybe just uh, tell us a bit more about why you end on this particular note and the importance of re-diversification? And is this a hopeful sign for the new period that the highlands is embarking on? The last chapter is a comparison between practices of rice reintroduction in the lowlands, which was a fairly highly capitalized state-centric affair that involved the International Rice Research Institute uh, in a very command-oriented way. I compare that process with the rice reintroduction in the highlands. So in both cases, the effect of Khmer Rouge agricultural practice was a massive de-diversification of the landscape, uh, the replacement of Uh, many, many, many different varieties of rice and other crops that had been planted uh, uh, on a very different geography into, they had substituted for that uh, very few rice varieties that were used and many were lost. And in both cases, in the lowlands and the highlands, there were searches for older crop varieties that could be reintroduced. And what's so fascinating is that in the highlands, this happened with no backing by international institutions. If people would go and visit their cousins or their uh, uncles across the border in Vietnam and come back with uh, a rice plant or two. These cultivars were essentially put back into the old system of selection, which involves when you've harvested some rice, you, you keep the biggest pieces of rice, you keep the, you know, you sort of winnow out the best rice and save it to uh, use a seed the next year. And over time, this results in 
uh, improvement of the rice and its adapt- adaptation to the specifics of where you're using it. And I think that this is one of the great untold stories of adaptability and resilience after the wars of the 20th century and the Khmer Rouge period simply hasn't been remarked on because it all happened under the radar, so to speak. And, you know, no one was asking questions about it. And yet here you have only 10 to 15 years after people started moving back up into the hills, you have this incredibly diverse system that emerged again. You know, this runs counter to the narratives that exist among many in Cambodia that highland agriculture is in some form backwards or primitive, right? It uh, doesn't involve tilling. It's, uh, you know, it doesn't look very neat when you look at it. And yet, incredibly, they reconstituted this system of agriculture in ways that were just amazing. This is a methodological thing as well. When I was trying to find out about people's histories, it seemed to me that if you went into someone's farm and just said, hey, what's that plant? Hey, where did this come from? Each one of these things found its way back up to the hills after a long period of interruption because of the actions of people in their relations with plants. And so it became possible to just go into people's farms or gardens and just say, hey, tell me the story of this or that seed. And this became a story of recuperation of uh, practices, and it became a story of reconnecting social networks that allowed for the transmission of knowledge and of the seed stock itself. In that sense, I do believe that there's a, a really hopeful story here. I wouldn't want to bet against the Jirai in terms of their ability to make the best of uh, adverse circumstances. You know, today, Uh, There are just enormous challenges that they're facing, land concessions, land grabbing, political interference, all kinds of things that have eroded their autonomy, much as has happened in the central highlands of Vietnam. And I think that these are really challenging times for the Jirai, and I'm not sure how hopeful I can be because I've seen some really sad sort of expropriations and uh, disenfranchisements and uh, trampling of human rights that strike me as being outrageous. Uh, So I'm hopeful because I've seen, you know, there's just such an amazing history of, I suppose it's resilience, but it's just this sort of creative engagement with the land and this sort of deployment of knowledge in such creative ways, uh, ways that you just you know, you you couldn't make it up, that's for sure. And they're very capacious in their understandings of the landscape and its possibilities. So there's hope in that. We are running out of time. So I just want to ask a quick question. Are you going to pick up on these themes of adaptability and resilience in your next research project? Or will it be something completely different? I have been talking to people about their experience with plantations recently and the way that they are adapting to plantation agriculture, which is the new norm that's been imposed on the landscape there. And I suppose that that's the next project uh, with these folks, if they'll continue to have me. Uh, But uh, you probably don't trust me on what my next steps are. Okay, but I will look forward to them nonetheless. Thank you so much. (laughs) Jonathan, thank you so much for joining us on New Books in Southeast Asian Studies. It was such a pleasure having this conversation.
Can I just say, I really have enjoyed speaking with you. It's wonderful. And uh, thank you so much for your interest. I just, I'm so glad to have the chance to, to talk about these things and uh, appreciate so much your great questions. Thank you. I, I appreciate that. Uh, and um, yeah, it's, it's so lovely to read your book and partly because a lot of it is related to my research interests as well, which we will not bore the listeners with. So I'll just... Uh, <laughs> everyone um, for joining us on this episode of New Books in Southeast Asian Studies, discussing the monograph Disturbed Forest Fragmented Memories, which was published by University of Washington Press earlier this year. And you have been listening to this episode uh, on this podcast channel on the New Books Network. So very big thank you for tuning in. And if you have enjoyed this episode, please do check out um, our other episodes and join us next month. Thank you.